0: So welcome back to the World Coffee Championship Series. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, WBC Part 1, I suggest you go back to listen to that before you listen to this. And I'm joined by a new co-host. Hello. Tell me, who are you?
1: I'm Rukia Del Rue. I am from Belgium, but I live in Guatemala. I was born in Africa. It's just a whole long story.
0: So where are you calling from right now?
1: I am in Guatemala, very much locked down, but yeah, in Guatemala.
0: What does Guatemalan lockdown look like, feel like?
1: It is very military enforced, let's say. We have curfew every single day and during weekends. Basically, if you're outside, you go to prison. So I don't <laughs> advise that. That
0: sounds really, that sounds really serious. <laughs> and I see you're calling me from your office and there's a picture behind you. It's quite blue with purple flowers.
1: That's actually a painting my mom did. My mom is colorblind, so I don't know what she thought it looked like, but it's actually very pretty. So, <laughs>
0: really? yes, she I think is. it's beautiful. It's great. <laughs> so, Ricky, chart for me your coffee journey.
1: I've been a certified judge since about 2008. I was. Fortunate to judge a whole bunch of finals on and off since 2010. I started helping the national competitions happen in either African countries or a lot of the Latin American ones. And then eventually I moved on full time for a while with CQI as the director of the Q program. So the certifying the Q graders and all of that. And I'm happy to be here.
0: All right, let's jump into part two of this story about the World Barista Championships.
1: Okay, before we start, let's thank our sponsors.
0: So the World Coffee Championship podcast series is supported by Victoria Arduino. Victoria Arduino advances coffee knowledge and innovates across design, technology, and performance to produce machines that nurture coffee professionals' passion for espresso excellence. You can learn more at victoriaarduino.com or give them a follow at victoriaarduino1905. And today's episode on the second part of the WBC story is supported by Scotsman and Urnex. You can learn more about how Scotsman has been one of the world's leading manufacturers of ice for over 50 years at www.scotsman-ice.it. And you can learn more about Urnex and its new line of biodegradable cleaners by visiting ernex.com. So Rookie, let me bring you and the listeners up to speed from the last episode. So these competitions had been going for 10 years, and they were fueled by volunteer passion. And Winning this competition was actually changing people's careers in major ways. But at the same time, some of the competitors were getting frustrated with the rules and some of the rules themselves, well, they were kind of missing the point. Yes. Like, let's take an example. Rookie, tell me about professional attire.
1: Like, where do you draw the line of what professional attire is?
0: Well, how was it scored before?
1: It was scored 0 to 6
0: it was a zero to six right yeah. so it's like how professional were you from a zero yeah. so what did what did a zero look like
1: like completely dirty or open shoes or like clearly something really <laughs> off but but that's what I mean it made you have these conversations that were they were also difficult to have even while leading them like <laughs> so
0: so you're spending time evaluating you know if you have brown shoes versus black shoes mm. does that is that a four or a five points kind of yep. distinction
1: Pretty much. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. So Rookie, I'd love to share with you a story from a New Zealand competitor that listeners may remember from the Latayat Yacht episode.
1: Hmm, is it Carl Sara by any chance?
0: Indeed it is. I'm Carl Sara. I'm a four times New Zealand barista champion. And he felt that things needed to change and he wanted to be part of that change.
1: Okay. Well, let's hear it.
0: As we move through the years
2: of competition, the baristas, we definitely improved. You know, we went from signature drinks that were only layers through to Thrall's Poulsen in 2005 deconstructing the signature drink for the first time. Those innovations were coming in. The judges were using a rule set that still wasn't able to capture innovation. I mean, the, the nitrous oxide incident for me was particularly frustrating in Tokyo. What I wanted to do with my signature drink involved me being able to use you know, nitrous oxide canisters. Rather than just having the drink that you drink, an important part of my signature drink was also having flavoured air being pushed through into a brandy snifter. I did my research and I found out that in the public spaces in the trade show, you weren't allowed any nitrous oxide inside the premises. It required all sorts of permits, but I was determined. So I, I spent literally months, I called in contacts all over the world to try and be able to get the correct permits. It was ridiculous. I mean, you know, and this was 2007, it's not like you just jump on Skype. I speak no Japanese and have no idea about what I'm even meant to be applying for. So I finally, I managed to get the right permits and I get into the barista briefing at the start of the competition. And they say, just to be clear, nobody here is allowed to use nitrous oxide. It's not allowed in the venue. There's sort of silence over the crowd and... You know, the voice of Heather Perry pipes up and she says, but I need it. You just, I just need it. You have
0: to make it happen. Heather Perry, whose espresso ended up being too sweet when she got to the finals.
1: Yes, I remember.
0: And then, you know, there was a
2: lot of like heated discussion around it. And they sort of went away. And eventually they decided that they would completely change the format of the competition they had to install a a nitrous oxide station that could charge up people's cream charges out the back of the competition. And I was flabbergasted. I mean, I'd done all of this work to find a workaround, understand the rules, and then all of a sudden at the last minute, you know, this sort of really significant rule change. This was incredibly frustrating. I was involved in the competitions throughout my period as a barista, and I was always opinionated and i felt if i was going to express disappointment or frustration at a piece of the competition then i at least had to put myself forward to try and be part of the solution
0: so rookie here we have these tensions and they needed to be resolved so how were they resolved where were they resolved
1: so at that time the joint leaders of SCAA-SCAE decided on a more like joint approach. And there was a meeting in early 2011 in Dublin.
2: I think a lot of baristas didn't really understand what happened in Dublin. I mean, most people probably don't even know that the Dublin event ever happened. It was well acknowledged within the existing rules and regulations and judges committees that we needed to do something, that there was a really significant opportunity to improve. And so the Dublin event was organised to bring all of the key people together. I would say 50 to 70 people were there in total. We had judges, we had national coordinators, we had sponsors. We ended up in breakout sessions looking at different competitions and different components of different competitions. It was one of those meetings where there were charts on the wall, but I think what actually came out of that was a really clear roadmap for us to move into the future. And I think the result of that was the 2011 Barista Championships in Bogota. It was the first time, and I'm not excited that we had to do it, but I'm proud that it got done, where we you know, had to say to a judge, I'm sorry you haven't passed our calibration, so you're not going to be judging. And you have to remember that these are incredible volunteers who, off their own expense, have flown from, you know, their own country and paid their own accommodation, and it was a really, really tough decision to make. And we did things like comment calibration where we went through every single score sheet and every single comment that every single judge made and made sure that the score that they put down matched the comment that they had beside it. So You know, they didn't say, uh, excellent espresso, two. And at the time when you're judging, when you're in the throes of it, you're tasting it and you're like, oh, I'll remember this forever. But these judges were damned hard. And, you know, if you get through another 10 competitors, you can't remember a cappuccino that you had two days and 80 coffees ago. And so my feeling as a barista myself was that people saw things happening. People saw change happening. Some people loved it. Some people hated it, but I think overall, the competition ended up in a much better position than it
0: was before. Carl also said something about volunteering that I thought was kind of special, and I want to share it with you. When I was
2: 21 years old and standing in my own cafe that I owned, people would walk up and say, so what are you going to do when you finish university? You know, at the time it wasn't recognized that being a barista was a genuine profession, certainly at that level. I think the way that baristas are viewed, even by the general public now, has evolved massively, massively. And I think that's in no small part to the work that all of these volunteers have done over decades and decades. They've committed their lives to improve the lives of others in the industry.
1: Yes. There are so many volunteers always involved in this. Like Carl said, all of the judges are volunteers and it's not an easy thing to have to tell them, yeah, you flew all the way to Bogota and sorry, but no, you can't judge.
0: Well, do you remember how that person felt?
1: Yes, I remember. It was, and obviously it was horrible. However, it isn't about the judges. It is about the competitors. It is about the barista. And if you have somebody that you can't really trust, it's a worse situation to Put the competitor through that and be like, yeah, but the judge paid a certification, so we have to have him judge you. It's oh, a. The
0: judges pay for certification.
1: Yeah, judges pay for certification and pay for their travel and accommodation and expenses to go to go oh, judge at all the world events.
0: What does it cost to judge?
1: It depends on where you do your certification. If you're lucky enough that there's one in your country, which they absolutely do not happen in every country, even if World Coffee Events does a huge effort in trying to make them happen. Basically, if you are a person in Guatemala or Honduras, you most likely have to fly to the US. So it's not just the cost of the certification, which is usually not that expensive, but it's the cost of travel to go and take the test and then either you pass or you don't and then you go back to your country and then you have to pay for the cost of travel to Worlds.
0: I mean, that's easily five grand in a couple of weeks of your life.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And what changed post-Dublin in terms of rules in terms of how things were organized
1: okay some aspects of rule revisions in the sense of some things as simple let's call it as professional attire or even almost driven by some competitors things like what do you consider Served. When can they do certain things or like starting to push the rules a little bit, but allowing the rules to have that, I don't wanna say flexibility because it's not really that, but at the same time, yes, to so be a little bit bendy and understand like, okay, what are we trying to obtain here? Instead of let's just focus on what it says here, word by word and and use it exactly like that, like understand the meaning of it.
0: The spirit of the law, not the letter of the law.
1: Exactly. I
0: see. Which is interesting because at some point, baristas start to push that distinction between what is written versus what is intended.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, if we go back to Bogota, then we had Alejandro and Federico as a team also pushing the rules a little bit.
0: Ah, uh, yes. I have that story for you, Rookie. Last year, I was in San Salvador and I recorded this interview when I was making a Filter Stories episode. Um, (laughs) I'm Federico Bolanos, that's about it. So Rookie, what listeners need to know about Federico is that in the mid-2000s, he and business partners set up Viva Espresso. The vision was very simple. The vision
3: was to make a world-class coffee available for consumers in El Salvador.
1: Yes, I have been fortunate enough to visit. A couple of times. They've done fantastic work.
3: Basically, uh, as I researched about specialty coffee, I discovered about the coffee expos in the United States, right? I think it was 2006, just after we had opened. As I was walking the, the hallways of the expo, I remember hearing a crowd cheering in the back of the room. And I remember asking the person in the booth I was talking to, I said, what is going on over there? Oh, that's a coffee competition. It's the barista competition. So I said, wow, that's fascinating. I'm going to go check it out. And as I walked into the competition area with the stands full of people and cheering for the competitors like they were gladiators in the arena, it was just an immediate feeling. It was was such a great energy. I said, I want to do this for the rest of my life. This is what I want to do. The Next year, I signed up to see if I qualified to be a judge at the National Barista Competition of the United States. So I signed up, I passed all the calibration tests and they chose me to be as a, as a judge for the
0: nationals. Once Federico had trained up to be a judge, he then started implementing a barista championship program in his Beaver Espresso Cafes. And he chose one of his young baristas to try and win the world championships, a young Salvadoran called Alejandro Mendez.
1: Mm-hmm. Federico, he walk the walk, let's say, because Federico not only trained as a judge, but was also a competitor himself in the early competitions in in El Salvador.
3: Training for a World Barista Championship meant training sessions from eight o'clock in the morning all the way to 10 o'clock at night. And not only practicing, but also one of the things I like the most, it is also about experimenting
0: and exploring the coffee. So, Rookie, in 2011, Alejandro goes to Bogota to compete at the World Barista Championships.
1: I remember him. I remember the song that everybody sang, the Alejandro song, which was a hit that year for more reasons than one.
0: Can you sing it for me?
1: I will not sing it, no matter how much you insist.
3: (laughs) The first round was nerve-wracking. I mean, hugely nerve-wracking because I always like to be right on the edge of what can and cannot be done. I think it's more interesting and I think it pushes the industry forward. So with Alejandro, we had developed this idea, which actually wasn't my idea. I just read it, which was that espresso was sweeter without the crema. I mean, the crema doesn't help the espresso. The crema, just it's just a bitter part of the drink that when mixed, it, it adds complexity. So in 2011, we had developed this routine where we would ask the judges to get rid of the crema. But in the rules, the rules say you had to serve the espresso with crema or it was a complete disqualification. And we did. We served the espressos with crema. But the rules didn't say you couldn't ask the judges to to get rid of it. So that's what we asked the judges to do and then drink it. So it was very, very sweet without this bitter component. So the first round was very nerve-wracking because we didn't know how it would go.
0: And of course, rookie, what happened in the end?
1: Well, Alejandro just went and won. (laughs) It was a huge excitement. I cannot imagine how Federico felt. We were first in a coffee producing country, and then the first champion from a producing country wins. So like those two things together, like I think added to that level of excitement that everybody had.
3: I just remember saying thanks to God, I mean,
0: it was just, it was magical. It was just unbelievable. And I asked Federico, what impact did it have on coffee drinking culture in El Salvador? I don't know if I'm going to make a good measure of this, but I think it did have a very, very big
3: impact on the country on the consumer. Not wide from corner to corner to El Salvador, but at least in the consumers that had access to our coffee, which is maybe a small niche. But that niche is very important because that niche trickles down, right? And with the word of mouth, it is very big. The people that that knew and read about this started to realize that El Salvador had a product that was world class. I mean, not Viva Espresso, El Salvador's coffee. And I think that not only the El Salvador consumer, but the coffee world also paid attention to El Salvador's coffee. And I remember that the following years, I think the next year, El Salvador's coffee was the most used uh, origin at competitions, and after that, other competitors have won the World Barista Championship using El Salvador's coffee. I would like to say, like a message to aspiring baristas, uh, especially from coffee-producing countries: first of all, follow your dreams. Don't listen to people that say that because other countries have more resources, because other baristas have a company that supports them better. Or This has to make a bigger flame in them. This has to push them forward. This has to be the reason they have to do it. Viva Espresso, we were a very small company. We were bootstrapping all this time, and, and we managed to compete with the big ones. And that was very rewarding. So keep on at it.
1: very inspiring. I think it definitely had an impact on specifically El Salvador, on baristas from producing countries, on all of that. And yes, I think his final message is a great one, because obviously a lot of it still depends on sort of personal ambition. It's not just about the country. It's not just about the support. It's not just about that. You have to want it. You have to be the one driving it.
0: And the year after, a competitor from another producing country, Guatemala, won.
1: Yep, two years in a row. That was a good message from baristas of producing countries. (laughs) But it at least definitely changed the, the paradigm or the misconception before that there used to be a lot of the baristas from producing countries that would think like, wow, it really sucks that I have to use coffee from the country I'm in. Do you see the advantage you have in being able to actually go to the farm, get involved in the processing, understand the coffee to such depth that maybe the others don't have that opportunity to be flying halfway across the world to, to get their coffee? So there's the two different sides and everybody could be at an advantage.
0: One thing I do notice is that there are a lot of Panamanian geishas, geisha, geisha, in these competitions.
1: Yes, it, it can be used if it is specifically well-processed ones and well-tended to ones. And and I just say this because I'm 2 billion percent cautious of people wanting to see this as the magical solution when obviously it's not just about that.
0: Because a few years later, Hidenori won and he used a coffee that wasn't a geisha.
1: Many of the competitors after that have actually won without using a A geisha even when dale won he was the only one non-geisha in those finals
0: so rookie you've been a judge now for over a decade yes you must have tried your fair share of coffees on stage yes i mean on the whole how good are these coffees
1: it's obviously a privilege honestly to be able to do this and to keep doing this this and you have to be passionate about it yes it is a huge privilege to try of the best tasting espressos that you can probably have like in your entire life on those stages
0: and you don't have to be a wbc judge on the world stage Mm -hmm. to get to try these coffees
1: yep of course if you're a volunteer and you're hanging out backstage chances are you'll get to try a whole bunch of things
0: and i have a story about someone who did just that (laughs) and i should also say her story is so much more than trying a delicious coffee backstage it has to do with venezuela politics and
4: love
1: Okay, tell me about it.
4: I am Maria Esther. I am a lawyer, a Venezuelan lawyer, living in Miami, Florida. As a Venezuelan, I used to work in the tax organization in my country, like doing the defense of the state. And I really love my job, but sadly, Venezuela had this problem with uh, a president, and that is the government of uh, President Chavez. I was against Chavez since the very beginning. He brought militars to the government. Uh, When this started happening, it was really stressful because I always said, no, I won't do that. This is not right. This is not what the law says. So uh, at some point, this affected my health. This affected my relationship at the time with my daughter, with my husband, everything. The story is a little bit more complicated. My sister was working for the very famous and most important coffee company in Venezuela, that is Café Fama de América. They brought these people from Switzerland to give like a kind of speaking about better practices in agriculture. I'm talking about 1996, something like that. They talk about specialty coffee. So like in 2003, I was sitting in my job, suffering and crying and struggling, and I decided to go to Google and try to find out what the specialty coffee was. And then in 2008, I was in New York and I went to this uh, Intelligentsia lab. They teach you in this course how to be a barista, what is a specialty coffee. After that, it was a no come back for me. I, I wanted to learn more. So in 2010, I read about these events. They were uh, huge events where all the people from the specialty coffee are coming and you have producers, equipment and everything, and I said I need to go. So I started volunteering in 2010. In 2014, I was the volunteer for, in different roles, and one of the roles was to work with this guy. His name is Hidenori, and it turns out that he was at the end, of the on Sunday, he was the World Barista Champion. My role, when I worked with him, just it was to be a helper. This means that you are there, standing, since really early in the morning, you are standing there, and you are going to help whatever they need. He was sweet because, you know, they smile at you and they they know that you are there to help them. But he was really, since the very beginning, uh, you know, with this shark look in his eyes that he was going to get the thing. So yes, they are sweet, but they go to the point. When you are a volunteer, you need to be there really early. Most of the time, if you are in the shift in the morning, you need to be there at seven. And they are there too, the, the competitors, they are really early and you have no coffee in your <laughs> in your system. So this is good to be a helper because you have the chance to try the coffees that they are dialing in and they are calibrating. One thing that I remember about Hidenori is that he was working with uh, Caturna and I think, I do believe that it was atypical, I'm not 100% sure. And it was different, you know, because everybody wanted to bring geishas and he brought a a Costa Rican caturra típica that was amazing. I got the chance to try the coffee with milk because they were doing some cappuccinos in the practice and they gave me some coffee and I tried and it was amazing. It was beautiful. I always recommend all my students to try to be a volunteer, always, because the experience that you get, the people that you know, it is priceless. In fact, I met my husband in Rimini. He was, yes, he was a volunteer in front of me. We were so busy brewing coffee. I was the barista leader for Aeropress and he was the barista leader for Chemex. And we were so busy that don't even interact. But two months later, we got like introduced again on Facebook, and, and I say oh, I remember you. You were in the espresso bar, in the brew bar. Oh, yes. And we started, four years later, we are married, and we have this school in, in Florida. So these are the things that only coffee, you know, I, I always say that coffee is like Nokia. It's connecting people all the time.
1: Super sweet story. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing that rang true to me was there is no harder place to get coffee early in the morning than a coffee show. <laughs> so yeah, she had a good volunteering position to be getting coffee from the future champion.
0: So rookie, while we're on the topic of volunteering, I want to introduce to you Innocent, a barista from Burundi and his volunteering journey.
5: I am um, Innocent, Burundian by nationality, the way i get into coffee industry as a barista is i was just in the hotel industry where i, I used to work as um, a waiter in the service but i saw like baristas around like in the the hotel making coffees making latte art then i got interested like why i said it is so cool uh, then i moved to kenya i did one year then after I moved to Uganda, where I did two years. Then after there, I moved to China, Shanghai.
0: And the reason I'm sharing Innocent's story is because I love his reasons for volunteering and where it leads him.
5: I volunteered because I think, first of all, I felt it in me. It was just my passion. Because, you know, while volunteering, you can learn a lot. The second thing was like, I felt like I want to meet famous people in the coffee industry. I think I achieved my dreams because I met Martin Shabaya from Kenya. Yeah, man, it was like, no, I can't can't believe it, I can't believe it. And he was also like, no, how did you get, (laughs) he said like, how did you get to arrive here? Then I told him, yeah, it happened, you know, man. Because for example, in China, we don't have like a lot of foreigners work in the coffee industry. There are not many.
0: So do you remember Martin Shabaya?
1: Absolutely. But I've known him from a few years as a a competitor.
0: And Martin's had quite the history. He's represented Kenya for three years in a row. In 2015, he came 43rd, but the next year he was 24th. And that leads me onto a change in the WBC rules. Rookie, can you tell me what happened in 2017?
1: That's when the WBC Evolution Working Group decided to make a wild card.
0: Okay, so the top 15 baristas who had the highest points from the first round got through into the semis. And then a wild card was added. So overall, there would be 16 people in the semis. Why?
1: There is a lot of symbolic value of making it into semifinals and being able to say you were a semifinalist.
0: And I remember the year before was the first year that we had live scoring, live ranking. So many of the competitors knew whether they were going to get through to semifinals. So it meant that when it came to semifinals announcements, I remember because I was there, it was like, well, we know who's going to get through. There's not very much tension.
1: Exactly. But you didn't know the 16th place.
0: Ah. So, How was that wildcard slot decided?
1: So the whole system is quite complicated. And basically what it meant is that a competitor who would have gotten between the 16th and 30th actually had a chance to make it into semifinals.
0: And of course, Ruki, we were both there when we saw Martin Shibaya get the 16th place, the competitor from Kenya.
1: Yes, exactly. I remember him being, like, pretty much happier than the person who won that year.
0: <laughs> I can attest to that. I had a microphone with me, and I ran to find Martin after that was announced.
1: <laughs> How do you
2: feel,
0: man? I can't explain, but this is something that has
6: never
3: happened. I'm, I'm really honoured. I feel like I'm not too be on the panel, but... <laughs> Yeah, am. What do I do? Did,
0: did you hear how like how light the chair the chair was for you?
3: I don't know, man. Uh, uh, at that time, I was really confused. Actually, until now,
0: yeah. I'm going to take back the coffee that I gave out. All of it. Give out all your coffee. All my coffee. because so, you didn't think you were going to get this far, so you give no, away. Never. Your... No, not now. <laughs>
2: 2019. Yeah. That right? yeah. I was planning for oh 2019.
0: And, you know, when competitors don't get through, you know, they trade their espresso coffees with each other, and even I managed to bag a couple, and they were delicious. And so that's what Martin had done. He'd given away all of his Championship Kenyan coffee.
1: Oh my god, that's that's really cute, but also kind of a problem.
0: <laughs> and so straight after me and Martin spoke, he went to get back all the coffee he'd given out.
1: Well, he had coffee to compete, so however he did it, he did have coffee.
0: <laughs> he did, he did. And rookie, from what I understand... This wildcard rule change and Martin getting through had an impact on countries neighbouring Kenya as well. Yeah. And I spoke with a woman called Annette from Uganda.
6: I'm Annette, a barista with 10 years experience.
0: She was working in a cafe in Kampala and she remembers the day Martin got through into the semi-finals.
6: In 2017, it was a usual day as usual, serving coffees to my clients. And then something happened. I remember my manager calling me. Annette, come and see, come and see. I was like, what is it? Come and see your colleague. You see barista. There's a barista from Africa who has made it. I was like, who is that? I'd come and see the scores. Because I was the head barista entering the office. So he was showing me the score. I said, you know, you love coffee so much. Someone from Africa has made it. This was Shabaya. I said, oh my God, oh my God, we need the trophy. We don't need only that. We need the trophy to come to Africa. I was so excited. Then I went direct to my Facebook page and posted. Then we started exchanging messages. Congratulations, we need it. We need the trophy. Oh my God, be with you. You know? Actually, we got so inspired. Seeing an African reaching the semis, we are like, you know what? One day. We shall bring the trophy to Africa. And really, we are working hard.
1: There are so many committed baristas in Africa, and I really hope they get to bring the trophy, as she says.
0: Well, rookie, I would argue that Annette is one of those committed baristas because her story is so inspirational. And it shines a light on how the Ugandan specialty coffee community is using these barista competitions to change coffee drinking culture in Uganda.
1: I would love to hear more about that. I have very little experience teaching there, but I do remember people being super passionate and I'd sometimes be there to teach Q, so something related to cupping specifically, not at all related to barista, but people knew that I also judged barista competitions and I had helped them years before. And then like suddenly at the end of the day, I thought everybody left and I would suddenly start hear the clinking of the cup on the saucer of somebody coming like all the way from the other side of the facilities where we were teaching for me to judge like their espresso or their cappuccino and give them feedback. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, that's, so much commitment. That's
6: I would love to hear about Annette's story. Oh, I'm in Kampala, that is the capital of Uganda. But I was born from the West. If you've ever heard that about Renzori Mountain, that's where I come from. <laughs> you know, we have dreams when you grow up from the village We keep on like dreaming that when will I reach the capitalist of Uganda. So the same applied to me after my senior six. I decided to visit the city. And oh my God, it became magical because in the villages, we used to see coffee growing here and there, but we didn't know that even it could end up in a cup. So when I joined the city, so that was in 2010, I started working in a restaurant. So it's when I saw people taking coffees. So I got inspired, but I didn't know where to go and learn more until one day when I joined the barista competition, which I had gone just to watch and see what was happening. So since that day, I saw how people were presenting baristas. They had the confidence each and everything. So I got inspired, but I promised myself that one day I'll be a champion. So in 2013, I competed and ended it in the semi finals. But I was so happy because it was my first time. Then in 2014, I decided to do it again. But this time it was marvelous because I became the first runners up for the Uganda National Barista Championship and then the best female barista of the year. So I got inspired, I was like, oh my God, I can make it. All I need is to do more and work on myself. Actually, in those years, I had challenges where, I you know, as a female barrister, I was being appointed in different posts. But you could find some like male barristers don't want to work with you because they'd be like, "We can't be working in a company where we are under a lady." So very many barristers at times they could leave jobs because they are being headed by a female. But all I could do. Train others. The most important thing which I I like in life is giving others a chance. Life goes on. In 2017, I was given an opportunity whereby I was nominated to represent Africa. That was in Mexico. All-stars female. I got an idea. Why can't I start a barista house and start now training and sharing knowledge with my fellow baristas, youth and women in the coffee industry and see how we can do it like other countries. So when I came back to Uganda, I thought about it and that's when I started the barista house. The barista championship is very important in Uganda because through the championships is when youth gain more knowledge, skills, so, actually, it's working a lot because it's even creating for them, even like opportunities, because we've been having high unemployment. But through the championships, we've seen very many youth coming on board, becoming barristers, and of which they get employed, starting up their own jobs. So, to me, it's something which has done a lot. Actually, the coffee drinking culture in Uganda is still low but we are doing a lot to see how we can promote it. Ugandans are used of drinking tea but we are changing it to coffee. Now we are teaching them on how to use simple equipments like French press. Because we know with the French press it's very common in Ugandan supermarkets and very affordable. That's why I've told you we are looking at how they can make their own coffees but using simple equipments. So if someone can buy a French press, still you can enjoy your filter coffee at home.
0: So rookie, tell me, what have you seen in terms of the development of the barista profession in Uganda and its neighbors?
1: They've been very committed as a region. It's maybe not cultures that are used to drinking espresso necessarily or not the whole time. But her approach sounds so realistic that okay, you can buy a French press in the supermarket here. So why don't we even teach you to do that correctly? And then at least you'll enjoy the cup of coffee that you're having at home. Yeah.
0: And it makes me reflect back on the conversation I had with Sonia in the last episode about the early days of the championships. And, you know, judges were sipping on straws. And they did things back then that makes us laugh today. (laughs) Where do you think it's going to be in 10 years time? What are we going to be seeing?
1: Well, I think this year has thrown us a major curveball called COVID-19. So honestly, we don't even really know where next year is going to be at right now. But Mm -hmm. hopefully, like you said, of 10 years ago, we're going to be laughing about some of the things we're seeing now. Why not?
0: Yeah, and I noticed like these days people are drinking less cow milk and more alternative milks. Yeah, And I know baristas have been asking, Why do the rules still incorporate cow's milk and not alternative milks?
1: Yeah, I think the rules are based on, let's call them classic definitions of drinks. And then obviously, if you go back again to like you were saying before, like the early days or when this started, the only milk alternative you had was soy. And soy that you had back then with coffee was not a very good combination. (laughs) And now we obviously have like so many options and some milk alternatives that are almost developed specifically for coffee so Mm -hmm. yeah we'll we'll see Mm -hmm. it just obviously means like you have to set the reference like what is a good flavored even oat milk when for example if i go to a cafe here in guatemala in non-covid times i cannot find oat milk that's not a thing yet here. It's still soy that you can find everywhere. Mm-hmm. So we have to still have the standards so that people in pretty much every country can have access to understanding like, okay, this is what we're aiming at.
0: Mm. Yeah. I have to remind myself that, you know, you have parts of the world where the brisk profession is developing very quickly and pushing boundaries. And you have other parts of the world which are using that as a reference point to learn and develop and grow. Mm-hmm. And these rules somehow have to balance both these needs.
1: Yep, they do. They have to tend to both sides of the full spectrum and still work for both, still be challenging or bendy enough that these people that are like have mastered, let's say, the basics can still find interest and challenges in seeing what they can play around with, but mm-hmm. also still have just a standard. If somebody doesn't want to do anything crazy, what's mm-hmm. wrong with that? Like both right. sides are completely valid.
0: Right, right. But when it comes to espresso, I mean, surely we've gone a bit too far and we can loosen things up a bit. I mean, in the rules, there are 12 subpoints that define what an espresso is. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just make it more experimental? Why don't we just say espresso is liquid that comes from a portafilter and it can be as long as you want.
1: With the rule as specific as it is, it is already a challenge. With the add-ins to fermentation and with aging in barrels and things like that, with decaffeination, it's just coffee and water in theory, but there's a line there somewhere. So even with the rule as specific as you think it is, there is already like a whole challenging side to it that we end up discussing about every single time.
0: So you're saying that even within espresso, if a competitor wants to push the rules, they could go into the back end, into the actual coffee, and what happened to the coffee bean up until the point, you know, it got ground on stage, and it could include fermentation and all sorts of things. (laughs) And that is an example of the scope for experimentation within the definition of espresso.
1: Yes, absolutely right.
0: But for a barista in a country which doesn't have as developed espresso drinking culture, these prescriptive rules offer them a roadmap to brewing better espresso coffee.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So rookie, if a listener wants to volunteer at these competitions, and indeed maybe eventually even shape the future direction of the rules, how can they get involved?
1: It depends on where you are. So the first thing I would say is get involved in your national competition. Obviously not everybody can afford to necessarily travel and go volunteer at Worlds. If you can, and that's what you want to do, then that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to do it internationally on the WBC website, so worldbaristedchampionship.org, there's a section specifically to the right side that says volunteer, (laughs) and it's as simple as that. And there are a lot of different positions that you can volunteer as depending on what you want to do and things like that. And for nationals, just contact, you can also see on the WBC website, who the national organization in your country is. If you have no idea who organizes the competitions, you can also have a look there and then simply reach out and ask, ask how you can get involved. I'm sure every national organization would appreciate it. All right, James, I think maybe it's time to do the credits now.
0: Yes. For this episode, we'd like to thank Cal Sara,
1: Federico Bolaños,
0: Maria Este López,
1: Innocent Niungabo,
0: Annette Nyakaisiki,
1: and Martin Chabaya. But I think there were many more, right?
0: Yeah, so many people helped out in this series and we've listed them all on the SCA website.
1: Fantastic. And the ones that we wouldn't be here without, let's talk about our sponsors.
0: Yes. So the World Coffee Championship podcast series is supported by Victoria Arduino. Victoria Arduino advances coffee knowledge and innovates across design, technology, and performance to produce machines that nurture coffee professionals' passion for espresso excellence. You can learn more at victoriaarduino.com or give them a follow at Victoria Arduino 1905 And today's episode on the second part of the WBC story is supported by Scotsman and Urnex. Learn more about how Scotsman has been one of the world's leading manufacturers of ice for over 50 years at www.scotsman-ice.it. And you can learn more about Ernex and its new line of biodegradable cleaners by visiting ernex.com.
1: And finally, James, who actually put all of this together? Because I can imagine this is a ton of work.
0: (laughs) Well, this podcast was produced by me. James Harper of Filter Productions for the Specialty Coffee Association. And uh, Rookie, I want to thank you for coming on the show and helping me navigate this story of the World Barista Championships.
1: Thank you so much. It was a ton of fun to go back in time as well and remember all of this. And I'm curious, though, what will happen in the next episode?
0: Ah, yes. So in the next episode, we are covering the roasting competition and Jezve ibrick We're going to be asking, why did we need a roasting Championships in the first place? There'll be stories of people falling in love, personal journeys being wrapped up in coffee drinking culture in Syria, and so much more.
1: Sounds exciting. I cannot wait to hear it.
0: And rookie, I hope you survive lockdown. And I can't wait to see you face to face next year at the competitions.
1: Thank you. Me too. Okay. Ciao,
3: ciao. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.